By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam Young from adamyounggolf.com. All right. What are we talking about today, Adam? We have a massive topic. Just the uh, notes alone have got like 20 pages on. (laughs) One of my favorite books on this topic is 350 pages. (laughs) So we're going to cram it into one episode. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not even my expertise necessarily, but to be honest, it's impact physics, right? Every shot in golf is impact physics. So a lot of this stuff applies just as much to the long game as well. I mean, if I'm changing certain variables for pitching, hitting higher shots, lower shots, higher spinning, all that stuff is exactly the same for for full swing as well. It's just you have more creativity with the short game, I think, with these pitch shots. We didn't even officially introduce it. Let's tell people. No, you didn't. I'll let you do it then. All right. We're talking about wedge play. Okay. (laughs) It's also important to say, I think we, or at least for this conversation do you want to define it as less than full swings because like you know i'll hit a sand wedge with a full swing that goes 105 110 yards i don't necessarily view that as wedge play i'm thinking more of like less than full swings oh well, you've just taken out half of my notes then no. <laughs> I'm joking. well i mean we're going to be talking about a lot of things but you know it, it's yeah, I guess we could do a little bit of both, but we're going to be talking about wedge play. There's, you know, we got a ton of questions. I don't know if we will get to, I mean, this might be a two-parter. We'll see. Well, on the other end of the scale as well, how it separates, how a pitch shot separates from a chip shot. I suppose the, the definition that I've always used is a chip spends more time on the ground than in the air. And so therefore, by definition, a pitch will spend more time in the air than on the ground. So, I mean, that it's really loose terms. I... 
people obsess over it. I've had pupils say, well, what is this? Is, it, is this a chip or is it a pitch? And I just say, well, it's it's a shot. It's a golf shot. <laughs> this, you know, it's when does a pond become a lake? I don't know. Is there a proper definition for that? It's the same thing with chipping and pitching. I mean, you're not going to obsess over, is this one 51% in the air? Do I completely change my technique because of that? It's like, no, just, you know, there's subtle differences between it to the point where you don't notice a chip become a pitch, really. Yeah, I think our goal in this episode, like many other episodes, is to simplify things for you. I think this is a part of the game where you can go wild with all different types of shots, techniques, you could really introduce, you know, some people view that as creativity, kind of how we discussed in our shot shaping episode where you can do so many different trajectories and, and shot shapes on the course. You can do even more with wedge play. Similar to that episode, we're going to try and convince you to go the more simple route because that that's how I've found success in my wedge play is, is getting better at a few techniques rather than stepping up to a shot and being like oh well i can do a bump and run i could flop it i could do the middle trajectory that doesn't jive well with my game and i don't think it works with a lot of other golfers games you want to step up with simple thoughts and confidence so hopefully we'll, we'll get you there with a few ideas i think we should start with like a global view of wedge play like let's say like the forty thousand foot view of what wedges are in comparison to the rest of your golf game do you think that that's a good idea to start just so we can kind of manage expectations on what what things are? Yeah, I suppose it's a shorter swing, right, in general. We talk a lot about the full swing. We talk a lot about tee shots and approach shots. And when you think about what we know about scoring in golf and what separates one golfer from another in terms of how they can shoot a lower score, certainly tee shots and approach shots are, are, are taking a massive chunk of that. It's like 60 to 70% of the game is, is determined by that in terms of scoring. Wedge play, and I'm not trying to diminish wedge play's importance. It's very important, but my view on it has kind of changed over the years. Here, here's what I think, and you can agree with me or disagree with me. I think for most golfers who are looking to you know, break 190, 80, Functional or successful wedge play is going to be more about eliminating those big mistakes, the chunks, the skulls, you know, those shots that you waste around the greens where you don't get on the on the putting surface the first time. It's not really about hitting it five feet from the hole and saving par or making a birdie on a par five with, with your third shot. I don't think successful wedge play is mostly about that. I think it's more about not shooting yourself in the foot. You know, stepping up to a 70-yard shot and feeling good that you're going to land the ball on the green. It doesn't have to be five or 10 feet away. It's just, you know, you want it on the putting surface. So I think it, in terms of scoring and what good wedge play looks like, I think it's more about that for most golfers. Yeah, if you're not hitting the green nine times out of 10 with most wedge shots, you know, barring the uh, the obvious really difficult one where there's a tree in your way or something. But if you're not hitting nine out of 10 greens with a wedge shot, it's probably a strategy thing and you, sh you shouldn't be attacking those pins. Same as long game, right? We talk about in long game, a wedge shot for most people is just like a pro's long game approach. And you can cost yourself more shots by missing the green 20% of the time, then you will gain shots by hitting it close 
20, 30% of the time. I think of wedge play as an area where you don't have to devote a tremendous amount of time of practice, but I think a lot of golfers ignore it to their own peril because, you know, it's fun hitting driver and, and doing the full shots more. And, and we certainly want you to practice a bulk of that there because, as we said, a lot of the scoring in golf is determined by those shots. But I view wedge play as where you can get like some really quick wins. I think it's a part of the game where you can eliminate shots rather quickly if, if it's an area where you struggle with, like I said, maybe chunking a few or sculling a few during a round and costing yourself three, four, five, six shots around the green that are they're easy to remove. But what's interesting about wedge play is I think as you become more and more skilled, you kind of hit a wall. So you, you can't get those quick wins as much. Once you become proficient, and like Adam said, you're hitting it maybe eight, nine times out of 10, then it becomes a little bit harder to make huge strides in scoring. So that's why I say like, you know, don't devote 80% of your practice time to wedge play. But certainly if it's a problem in your game, you could start by devoting a bit more time there, um, getting those quick wins, become proficient and getting that confidence. That That's how I view wedge play now is because eventually like, you know, even scratch golfers, I think their scrambling percentage is around 50%. You know, they're not getting up and down every time. That's short shots as well. That's That's around the green from farther out from 40, 50, 60 yards. It's even lower than that. Yep. And if you look at the strokes gain data, there's some interesting stats that ShotScope gave me. And I put this into an article and it shows where each handicap level is losing strokes to professional golfers. Uh, and it backs up a lot of Mark Brody's research. You know, essentially a bulk of the shots are being lost in tee shots and approach shots. And third place is putting. But short game is an area where there's not as much separation. Uh, you know, a 20 handicapper is only losing four shots around to a pro golfer in short game. And I think their definition of short game is 100 yards and in around there. Whereas a 20 handicapper is losing almost 11 and a half shots on, in iron play approach shots. So like I said, it's an area of the game where you can get some quick wins. You can quickly reduce scores, but at the same time, and, and not to be like a Debbie downer about it, eventually there's a wall you kind of hit and not to say you don't practice wedges. I practice them all the time, but it, you know, you don't obsess over them, so to speak. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing in terms of the stats of wedges. I, I've always used for any shot outside a hundred yards there's like a 5 or 6% rule in terms of how close a pro can get it. So at 100 yards, they're going to get it about 6 yards away from the flag on average, which is 18 feet. And then at 200 yards, they're going to get it 12 yards away, which is 36 feet. So they, that rule kind of holds up across the board once you get outside 100 yards. However, once you get inside 100 yards it's not the same. It's almost like there's an increased difficulty level and players can't get it to that 6% level as, as often. So you'll see from, from 50 yards, you'd imagine that the average pro is getting it to 9 feet based on those stats or that 6% rule. But in fact, instead of 9 feet, they, they're closer to about 13, 14, 15 feet. It's very similar to the 100-yard shot. So that's why they, there isn't as much separation really in terms of strokes gained because even if you got to pro level with pitching I mean that would be a good thing you are going to save shots definitely but if you did that wouldn't save you as many shots as if you got to pro level let's say driving or approach shots 
because like you said most 20 handicappers are actually hitting the green so they're going to be they're not going to be taking those big numbers a lot of the time that they would with their drivers or their irons oh well, i don't know have you been around a lot of 20 handicappers lately <laughs> i see a lot i see a lot of people blowing shots around the green when they don't have to i'm not saying it's happening every hole but there's a lot to clean up in wedge play at those levels you know the 10 20 30 handicap level again everyone's different we're speaking in generalities if it's low-hanging fruit if it's low-hanging fruit like you're attacking a pin that's cut three feet from the front edge and there's a bunker short and you miss a little bit short and it goes in the bunker that's low-hanging fruit because that's a strategy thing or duff shots as well so they are certainly low-hanging fruit things but Say, for example, an average amateur might get it to 30 feet from the hole. And their chance of holing it might be 3% the next putt. Well, if they hit a tour level shot to about 15 feet, they're probably not actually saving themselves that many shots because an amateur from 15, 20 feet is still probably going to only hole maybe 5, probably maximum 10% of the time. I think that's probably pro level. Maybe they're eliminating some three putts as well from going around the 30, 40 foot window down to the 20 foot inside. They're probably eliminating some three putts in there. Yep, yeah, good point. But I think how you framed it is really good. It's like you can have a tour level wedge game and still not separate yourself if you had a tour level driver or approach game. It's this fine line I walk because I don't want to diminish wedge play because it is very important. I think if you're confident with your wedges, it helps other parts of your game as well. It bleeds over into other parts of your game kind of psychologically. What does successful wedge play look like to you? I know we talk a lot about our impact laws, you know, face angle, club path, angle of attack, impact location, ground contact. In my view, I think the rules change a little bit with wedges, like what what's a little bit more important. But I'm, I'm kind of curious when, when we look at it from that lens, what's important to you with wedge play? Well, again, I suppose you'd have to start with what people obsess over. So people come onto my lesson tee and they're like, what, what method should I use? Should I use Dave Peltz's method, which is kind of stiff-wristed, forward shaft lean and ball back? Or should I use Mickelson's hinge and hold method, which, by the way, don't actually use that because you'd miss the ball. If, if you were to truly use a hinge and hold method, the club would come in so high through impact, you wouldn't hit the ball. So Mickelson doesn't actually do that. He just It's just a feel. And I see lots of amateurs actually do it and get worse. Or do I use the more common, so over the last sort of 10, maybe 15 years, guys like Siegman, Stan Atlee, they're more throwing the club head through, allow, allowing the wrists to hinge freely, which has been kind of blasphemy over the uh, prior to that point. So there's all these different methods. And again, it's just like the full swing. I think people obsess over the method to the point that they're not getting the what actually determines the outcome, which is let's get the impact physics correct or, or functional. And so it's it's very similar to full game for the most part, uh, especially for long wedges, right? You're going to be contacting ball first, then turf afterwards. Uh, there'll often be a divot. Now with partial wedges, once you get really close to the green, it's okay to hit maybe an inch, inch and a half behind the ball, especially if you're using lots of bounce. 
and a shallow angle of attack. That can actually give you a, a bigger margin for error. So I don't think I'd go to the point of actively telling most golfers try to hit an inch and a half behind because most golfers are already hitting three inches behind. So to, to add that to it, add another and half, inch and a half to it won't uh, make them any better in my experience. But you can get away with more. The, the ground contact, the area of functionality opens up with a wedge shot. Is that, is that what you're alluding to with the difference between full and, and short game? I think for me, like when I think about those intermediate wedge shots, 40 to 80 yards, and then the ones that are closer to the green, maybe like 35 and in, I would say I'm less concerned with like, let's say face angle. Now, I'm not so concerned if, you know, because you're so close to the green, you know, if my face was way too open on a driver shot, I, I might be pumping it out of bounds to the right, where if it's a little open on the wedge shot, like I, I can get away with that. So I feel like for me, actually, I, I think in my own game, when I think about it, ground contact and like angle of attack and face location is super important for wedge play for me. I'm not really thinking about my path too much or face angle. I just want to hit it on the right part of the face so I can get optimal spin conditions. I do want to control my angle of attack. I'm certainly a bit steeper with my wedges and I shaft lean a lot. So ground contact's important for me. I, I don't use as much bounce as other players, despite having a lot of bounce on my wedges. If I don't get my my ground contact right, you know, I can hit a few maybe chunky here and there. In terms of my own game and, and perhaps, you know, others would feel differently. Like I said, I'm not so much concerned about maybe my club path or where the face is pointing as much because you're much closer to the hole. Well, when you have more loft, any variance in face angle doesn't have a huge effect on the outcome as well. Yeah, it's more about the distance control is paramount. Yes, yeah. You're more likely to miss it long or short by 20 yes, feet than you are exactly. left or right by 20 feet. Because actually to miss it left or right with a wedge would require quite a big face change. And in fact, with a wedge, the path is more influential. It's still, still face dominant, but the path is more influential on the start and overall direction with, with a wedge. So that's why face angle becomes less important as we get higher lofts. Yeah, but I think when I think of what successful wedge play looks like and then work backwards to that about what you're doing at impact, it's mostly about distance control because like Adam said, you're not going to be worrying about missing your target left or right so much. It's more about if you have a 70-yard shot to the green or a 30-yard shot, obviously that's important with a 150-yard shot as well, but like with wedge play, it's more about distance control and trajectory and spin because that's how you land the ball the right distance and stop it. Like, I, I feel like those get a little bit more important. So like controlling your swing speed, for example, I need to have, and there are different methods for this. There's Pels's clock method is what I use. If I'm going to hit a 50 yard wedge shot, what am I going to change in my swing speed versus an 80 yard wedge shot? And I do that with the clock system. I feel like how far my hands are going back in my swing is my cue and I think that will control how fast I'm swinging, which will have a huge amount of influence on how far the ball goes. Controlling your swing speed is incredibly important. Yeah. There's, in my own game, there's two things that I focus on. It's ground contact and speed. 
because it's all about distance control. Like you said, you're not going to miss left or right as much. So it's more about controlling the long and short. And we want consistent spins. We want consistent ball speeds. We want consistent trajectory. So all that falls under strike. If you're striking it in the same way each time, then you're going to get those consistent spins and launches. And then if you're controlling your speed, then again, that's going to help with ball speed as well as does ground strike. So so yeah, strike and speed are my two focuses. And I actually do them in my in my routine. I focus on them in a specific order. So in my pre-shot routine, before I hit the shot, I am very speed focused. So I'm doing things like I, I use the clock system similar to yourself. I use a modified pelt version. But I'm also absorbing visually where the flag is and trying to use a little bit of instinct. So I'm kind of combining those two fields, the visual of where the flag is and the feel of the clock system. And I'll do three practice swings to lock in a feel. And then I step to the ball, like set up to the ball, and then my focus becomes contact. So I've locked in the speed in the pre-shot routine, then I'm focusing on contact throughout the swing. So that's my personal routine for almost every, every shot within, say, 80 yards or so. It's a more instinctual part of golf, I would say, because like when I hit, let's say I have a 170-yard approach shot, I'm mostly just selecting the correct iron. I'm not thinking so much about changing my swing speed that much versus hitting a 40-yard or 80-yard wedge shot. I'm still probably going to use my lob wedge. That's just what I use for those shots. So yeah, controlling the swing speed becomes even more paramount because I have to adjust it a lot more that kind of engages that feel instinctual part of your game more. And that's where, you know, we'll talk about practice probably later in this episode, but that's where I think I always say like feel has to be earned. It's not something you can explain to someone. Like I can't explain to you what a 50 yard wedge shot is going to be. You've got to kind of earn that through repetition, experimentation in your practice sessions. That's why, you know, coming off the off season, I'll spend more time outdoors on my wedge play because I have to reestablish that feel. I have to earn it back. I, I just don't have it as much not being outdoors and seeing it. I think there's like that connection between, you know, your eyes and your brain and your body and all of that more so than the full swing. You can shortcut it a little bit with the clock system. Yes, absolutely. You still need a practice. I mean, my, my half sand wedge, I, I use half instead of a, a clock system. So it's half, three quarters and full. Uh, my half sand wedge goes 60 yards. But if I'm out of practice, it can go anywhere from 50 to 70. But I never hit an 80-yard half sand wedge. So it gives me that at least another reference point that I can I can draw upon. And then from there, you're basically polishing that distance control off with more more practice. Actually, let me clarify what I said. I feel very good about my distances from 40 to 80 because I always practice those at home on my launch monitor. And I... I, I have those kind of feels locked in the shots I'm more talking about are those like around the green shots where like, let's say, you know, I'm short-sided or wherever I have plenty of green to work with. Like I got to think about where I'm landing the ball on the green. It's not a yardage. So I'm closer. Let's say I'm like 20 yards away for a number. Those are the shots where I have to evaluate the lie in the rough or the fairway where I want to land it on the green, thinking about the green hardness or softness. Like those are all like, the ones where I think you need to be, you know, either on the course more or practicing that more, kind of earn that feel. So like, let's say I'm in a tournament week, 
I'm going to practice those shots a bit more because I just want to fine tune that and get that feel back. But, you know, my 50 yard shot's my 50 yard shot. I know that no matter what. I suppose that's the hard part with this conversation, right? You could be talking about a wedge shot. And in, in yeah. <laughs> my mind, I might be talking about the full wedge. And then everybody else is thinking about, well, what about the shots around the green? Because they're all kind of different. You have these they full are. wedges, which are basically like a full swing. You have the partial wedges, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 yards, which you might be using the clock system. And then you have the around the green shots, which most people are just going to be pure feel. You don't have a clock system for, for inside 20 yards, unless maybe you're Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, yeah he might be going like you know five minutes past seven o'clock or something but it's around the green you you're going purely on feel i don't even use a number you know when you're practicing on the simulator and you start to think okay there's that's 20 this is what 20 yards feels like this is what 15 yards feels like that's quite good but when you get into the real situation you're probably purely visual right it's see the flag yeah, I, I, I want to be more instinctual on those shots. And I'm not, and I, just to be clear to everyone, <laughs> I am not Seve Ballesteros around the greens. <laughs> if I if I had to pick a weakness of my game, like I'm really good with those 40 to 80 yard shots. I've worked a lot on those. But I would say the weakest part of my game are probably 30 yards and in. I don't spend as much time on them as probably I should. I, I do enough to where I'm not shooting myself in the foot on those shots. I'm not someone like Jordan Spieth who, you know, you're, you're seeing him hit all these fantastic wedge shots five feet away. Like I'm just, I hit some good ones and I hit some okay ones. And that's where I think most golfers want to get to. Like don't put this burden on yourself where you feel like you need to land it inside an eight foot window every time. You do not. I've gotten to a level of golf that I'm pretty satisfied with, and I don't do that. I'm decent, but I'm not great. Do you want to talk about technique at all? With the main parts, if you're if you're giving someone a stock technique that would probably apply to most 60-yard shots and most 30-yard shots, it's going to be something like ball in the middle of the stance, roughly, you know, maybe a couple of inches either side of it. A uh, slight forward shaft lean, not too excessive. Maybe weight 60 to 70% on the left side and you're kind of maintaining it throughout the shot. You're not shifting off the ball too much. The upper body is going to be pretty stacked over the lower body. So you're not going to be tilted back like, say, with a driver. Face might be ever so slightly open, square to open. I know that's that's actually one of the things that has changed over the years. Lots of players used to have the face very open. Now it's gone more to a squarer position because people see it as less complicated. And I'm fine with that as well. Then the foot line. I like the foot line to be slightly open just because it helps to pre-clear the hips but the shoulders are going to be pretty square at setup. So those that's like a stock pattern that would apply to most wedge shots, even the, even the longer ones. Ground contact, I would say I, I still like to see ball first contact. As we mentioned, with really short shots, the shots inside sort of 40, 50 yards, you can, I don't even want to say get away with hitting an inch behind. It's probably going to happen. Because of the bounce of the club, the sole is quite thick. And it's okay to do that. If you're hitting with bounce, it's okay to actually bounce the club an inch behind up into the ball. That's not the end of the world. If you did that when you're swinging the club full speed, you're probably going to take a chunky divot that starts an inch behind, and that would be more disastrous. So, you know, I give people a little bit of a wider margin for error, I suppose, with, with shorter shots and ground contact, as long as they're using the bounce. Then once you get that down, 
and you're pretty good with that, we can start to vary some things to change certain impact variables to achieve different shot outcomes. So, you know, you might need a steeper angle attack. You might need more loft for one shot, especially once you're inside 30 yards and you can't stop it with spin, right? Because you can't spin the ball. I suppose, there you go. What creates spin? Because that, that's a big question that everybody on Twitter asked. What are the variables that create spin in a golf shot? When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour-level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. People are always wondering like, oh, can I have that one-stop spin shot? I mean, in most scenarios, you cannot, probably just because of the turf conditions. You're not playing on a golf course that has conditions that will allow you to do that. I would say striking it on the right part of the face and getting clean contact where there's not so much grass between the ball and the face. Obviously, you can't do that so much in the rough. That's the penalty for being in the rough. You can't spin it as much. But if you're on the fairway, it's impact location and controlling the ground strike. Because if you do hit a nice crisp shot where you're hitting the ball first and then the turf, that's going to spin it the most. I don't really think about, you know, people always say like, oh, you got to hit down on it so much to spin it. Like I don't hit down on it all that much and I spin it just fine because I'm just really striking it in in a good part of the face and not hitting it three inches behind the ball. 
that's the one change from full swing with the short game shots. I would say the low point with these short shots is much more level with the golf ball. So whereas with an iron, a full-out seven iron for a pro, that low point might be four, five, six inches in front of the ball. So they're hitting ball, and then the middle of the divot occurs much later. With a wedge, you're going to see it much closer. The low point's going to be much closer to the ball. So for those of you who don't know what low point means, think of the swing as a hula hoop, and the ball is going to be placed much closer to the bottom of that hula hoop. That just creates a shallower angle of attack. You still might create ground contact after because there's some deflection with the ball. I probably shouldn't have said that. Yeah, it's just a shallow angle of attack. Like you said, you're not hitting down on it as much. That club is not attacking the ball too steeply unless, say, you're in the rough or you have, say, something behind the ball. Maybe there's a little bit of mud behind it or you're in a divot or something and you need to hit a steeper angle of attack to to correctly strike the golf ball but for a stock shot it's going to be a pretty level angle of attack now something that you said about face strike location being important that's actually a correlator not a causal factor in terms of spin and so you are you saying that you'd like to see a little lower on the face maybe not necessarily i mean you just want to get it in i know there's not much gear effect going on it's more from what i understand like what i've heard it's I think I always refer to ping, but yeah, they, they found that when you get those more spinny shots lower on the face, it wasn't because of gear effect. I think they found out because it was just cleaner contact. I mean, a lot of it has to do with equipment and your ball too. If you're playing worn out wedges and, and let's say a cheaper golf ball, like a noodle, you're not going to be able to spin it as much. We can get into equipment later, perhaps in part two of this, but there's some other factors outside of just contact and turf conditions that will determine spin as well. Yeah, so in terms of spin, we got the ball quality. Is it high, higher spinning ball? You know, if you're using a Pro V or what is it, a Titleist AVX is one of the lower spinning balls, at least the previous model. I think the 2016, 2017 AVX was really low spinning. Great for the driver, but it struggled to stop on the greens. That was the problem with it. So versus a Pro V1, that's going to be a higher spinning ball. Yeah, most... You know, three-piece premium urethane golf balls. I don't care if it's a tailor-made Bridgestone, Titleist, whatever. They all do what they're supposed to do now, which is not spin much off of tee shots and spin plenty around the greens. But if you're playing with like a very, you know, let's say you're getting a $15 golf ball at Dick's Sporting Goods, that's a no-name, it's not going to spin as much around the green. That's $15 for a dozen, right? Not, yeah. not $15 per ball. <laughs> not 15 for a ball, but you know, it's not like you have to spend that much for balls, but it, it does make a difference. Like I, I've tested between different golf balls and wedge shots. You could be losing as much as 500 RPMs if you're not playing a premium ball. Not saying that everyone has to play a premium ball, but it does make a difference. Here's an interesting one. When you get a harder golf ball, versus softer ones. Softer ones tend to start out lower because there's more friction and, and the ball stays on the face just a little bit longer so the, the angle of attack drags the ball flight down. So basically, softer balls tend to launch lower with higher spin and harder golf balls tend to launch higher with lower spin. So really, a harder ball, it stops less from spin However, it stops a little bit more because it's usually coming in at a steeper angle or it's been launched higher. So the stopping power isn't as diminished as you would think with a harder ball, especially on long shots. Even if you had a non-premium golf ball, you can still hit fine wedges if you can control those impact conditions more effectively. 
Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I prioritize ground contact or, or I say ball first contact in terms of spin because you don't want to get too much grass trapped between the club face and the ball because that just reduces friction, which creates that uh, lack of spin. So yeah, usually, like you said, with the ping studies, it goes hand in hand when you create good ball first contact then that is going to tend to correlate to a lower strike on the face it's not the low strike on the face that's causing the higher spin because there's very little gear effect with wedges if, if anything i liked what you said about technique in terms of like the simplicity of it I, I agree with everything you said i'd just like to throw in one thought about wedge play that's helped me I know a lot of golfers, and this was me for a long time in, in wedge play, they struggle because I see their body stalling and kind of the arms and hands take over. And I think that results in all of the bad impact conditions that are skulls, chunks. The, the thing that's helped me the most and gotten me to a better place with, with wedge play is almost feeling like my arms and are along for the ride. I think that the rotation of my hips and torso making sure that like let's say it's the belt buckle or my sternum is continuing at impact and through impact is so important because when that stalls and you could say this about the full swing too you know the arms take over and then you can't control impact conditions as effectively as that you're almost like trying to save it at that point so one thing that's always helped me with wedge play when I'm struggling is just really focusing on the rotation of my body is like the engine of the shot, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's a drill we used to do. Just you get the club shaft, you stick the grip end into your belly button and you extend your arms down. So you're holding onto the club shaft, if you can visualize that. And then that just encourages you to turn everything back and through together. And obviously that could be overdone as well. But that is one of the, if you look at the kinematic sequence of the pitching swing, everything is a little bit more together than with the full swing. With the full swing, because power is more important, you're going to get more separation. Like the arms are going to lag yep. behind the body a little bit. But if you try to do that in the, in the short game shot, there's not enough time to get back to a decent impact position. So you can get some funky movements happening. And yeah, many players who kind of stall out the body, it could be one of two things. It could be that in the backswing they've sucked their arms in too far behind them too early and then they have to wait and give the arms time to catch up or it could be a concept thing for many beginners they are trying to stay behind it and get under it to lift the ball in the air and so if you were going to try to do that that's the exact technique you would use right just all armsy all very wristy and so there's a there's a balance in there i think certainly in my era there, it was very much, you know, the pelts thing, lean the shaft forwards, take the arms completely out of it. Whereas you look at some of the best players ever to have played the game with their short games, guys like Seve Ballesteros, they were very handsy. They were very armsy as well, but they still had that body rotating through as well. Yeah. And I'm not, yeah, I don't mean to say that the arms and hands don't have their role like they have a, an incredibly important role but they can't be the only role exactly and i think if you if you get that club head or the sole of the club to bounce on the ground in a good place almost everything is becomes much less relevant yeah i think that's why approaching it with like a neutral mentality like you said like you don't need to do anything funky you don't need to move the ball around in your stance that much 
you don't necessarily have to lean the shaft so far forward. It can be, like you said, a, a gentle lean forward. And you're just letting the loft of the club and the design of the sole do its work, but not try and actively manipulate that too much. You know, not trying to like gouge down on it with angle of attack. Andrew Rice had, a, I thought, a really nice way of describing wedge play. And it kind of alludes to what you were saying about having a, a more level angle of attack and low point. He told me it's like it's like landing a plane. You know, you don't land a plane on the runway unless you're going into JFK Airport or LaGuardia. You're not coming down on like this really steep descent. Like the plane has to come down on this gentle descent angle where you don't have a smooth landing. And I think that's a good way to think about wedge play. You don't need to like stab that wedge into the ground. It could just be like this gentle, almost level, you know, a, a plane landing gently. I, I always thought that was a great way to think about it. That's how I've always taught kids. I might have got that from Andrew Rice. I don't know where I first got that analogy from, but I use that a lot with kids. I actually set up on the mat. I spray with Dr. Scholl's foot spray a little airport on the mat. And I give them different runways. So I say runway A, B, and C. I tell them there's water before the runway, so you don't want to land the plane too much in in the water at all, or you want to land it on the runway, not before. But it wants to be a soft landing. Or, you know, for speciality shots, I say when you're in the rough, you might want to crash land that plane. And so kids have fun kind of (laughs) getting their plane to land in different ways. But yeah, as long as you land that plane on the right runway and in, in the right place, that ball will go up in the air and you don't have to do much else from there apart from control the speed. And we're kind of opening the can of worms with, with the, I think there's probably the most variability in wedge play in golf versus the other parts of the game because like, let's say I'm in thick rough and the ball's buried. I got to get super steep because if I come in too shallow, then I'm creating too much opportunity for the wedge to interact with the grass before the ball. And that will just make it harder to create clean contact and get the ball up. So, you know, if I'm like buried deep in the, in the rough, I've got to minimize the amount of time that that wedge spends in the grass versus let's say I was on the fairway before the green and I'm just hitting kind of like a stock, maybe sand wedge running chip. Then I'm thinking more about the gentle plane landing technique where I'm not trying to gouge the ball into the turf. I'm just going to gently land the plane, let the ball hit the face on the right part and and hopefully use some bounce so it kind of doesn't dig too much into the turf. Again, you have to earn that feel and that practice and practicing all different types of lies, whether they're on the in the fairway, intermediate or in the deep rough or bunkers. You have to earn that. This is where we might get more specific with, or or more advanced, I should say, with different techniques or how you can just add little variables to the stock shot, you know, the stock pattern where I said ball middle, slight forward shaft lean, a little bit of weight on the left side. So that's the kind of stock pattern. So if you have a bad line, you need a steeper angle of attack. There are some variables that you can add to it. And this applies to full swing as well. You could put a little bit more weight on the left side or a lot more, and that steepens the angle attack. You could add more forward shaft lean at address or, or through impact. That steepens the angle of attack, tends to. It's not the only thing. And you could put the ball farther back in the stance. That will steepen the angle of attack, all else being equal. Now, all of those things also, they tend to lower the loft. So you get the benefits of a steeper angle of attack if that's what you need, but you get reduced loft 
and thus you also get reduced bounce and we haven't even gone into bounce yet but the reverse might be true so if you needed a shallower angle of attack so say your ball is on a nice fluffy lie and you wanted a higher shot you could place the ball a touch farther forward in the stance that's okay if it's on a fluffy lie you don't need a steep angle of attack there you could level out the weight a little bit more. I don't like to see the weight on the back foot, but you could start maybe more 50-50. And you can neutralize the shaft lean. All of those things will add loft, add bounce, and neutralize the angle of attack. You tend to see both ends of the scale there, the steeper angle of attack and lower loft versus the shallower angle of attack and higher loft. There are ways, this is the next level of advance, of getting both, or the best of both. So I could get a steeper angle of attack and higher loft. So that would be the situation where you're in a bad lie in the rough, right next to the green, and you need a high shot just to get it over the bunker and stop it quickly next to a pin. So in that scenario, you might add some angle of attack steepening moves. So I might put my weight on the left foot. I might lean the shaft forward a little bit more. And then how do you bring loft back in from there? Well, you could open the face or you could just go to a lob wedge. And then all of a sudden you've got the steeper angle of attack and the higher loft. So that is kind of the, the best of, I don't want to say the best of both worlds, but that's needed in that specific scenario that I just talked about. Bad lie pinned up close to the bunker. So I've probably made some people glaze over. I've probably made all the analytical people pause and write everything down, but... It can get really complicated, but there are some principles that once you understand the principles and you know when to apply them, you don't need to know every specific technique out there. Yeah, I think what I try and do with my wedge play, and I, I talked about simplicity in the beginning of this episode, I feel like I really only have two or three different quote unquote shots. You know, I have my neutral in the fairway, 50 yards away, I'm going to hit that. Those stock shots, always the same. And then if I'm trying to get the ball, let's say I'm, I've got plenty of green between me and the pin and I want to run it more, I'll just kind of play a lower loft. I play a sand wedge and I feel like I'm going to get super shallow with it and then just kind of hit a running wedge shot. And then if I have a more lofted shot, maybe in the rough, I'll open the face, maybe change a little bit things and hinge my wrists a little bit earlier. I used to do all types of crazy wedge shots when I was a kid and I've, you know, really simplified it where I'm only having two or three different, you know, technique thoughts at most. And they're all probably very similar. So I'm not a fan of someone stepping up to the ball and thinking of like six or seven different scenarios they can choose from. I'd rather you get really good at one feel or two feels and then just stick with that, knowing like, okay, here's my reasonable trajectory, get it on the green, and it runs a little bit shot. And if I need to add a little bit more loft, you could do a very similar technique. Just use a higher lofted club or open the face a bit. You don't have to get that wild with it, unless like you get these crazier lies where it's like, all right, let's say you're deeply buried in the rough, then you can do what Adam was suggesting is like get that weight a little bit forward, get steeper on it. But I feel like you don't have to do that on most wedge shots. They're a little bit more straightforward. I mean, you want to make it as simple as possible. But at the same time, that balance of selecting the right shot. You know, if you're playing a chip shot from deep rough, that 
club head is just going to get snagged. <laughs> You're going to get one of those shots that just dribbles out. So you need to understand how do I add more speed in this thick rough and without sending the ball flying too far. And that's going to require you know, adding more loft, maybe opening the face a little bit more. That's why practice is so important because everyone needs to figure that out on their own terms, what that feel is. When I'm educating a player, it's you start with the stock shot, right? This is just the stock shot. And then once they've got that, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's add a new shot to this. Let's learn this one. Let's learn the steeper angle of attack shot, which could be valuable when you're, say, in the rough. Now let's learn the higher lofted shot. This might be years down the line then, depending on how much someone practices, but let's learn the steeper angle of attack with the higher lofted shot. And so you're, you're developing these different shots. It might only be four or five different types of shots with where you can vary the variables more around those as well but you can get so creative you can make it really complicated as well as well but it's it's one of those things where yeah there are just so many options that's why i love short game there there are so many options and, and it requires a lot of imagination but uh, it's striking that balance between overcomplicating it for the player and giving them the right tools as well. Let's wrap up this segment of it with practice ideas because I, I think with the creativity and the shot selection, you're only able to do that unless you have enough reps in practice to feel confident with these different techniques. Because with wedge play comes different lies, whether that's, if it, is it sitting up in the rough? Is it buried or in between? Is it a downhill lie? Is it an uphill lie? Is it a side hill lie? You know, there's a ton of variables. And then where you are in relation to the green, are you going to want to play a lower trajectory shot or a higher trajectory shot based on your situation? I'm a big fan of people solving those problems for themselves through practice because it's very hard to figure it out without putting that time in. And then again, whenever I say time, I'm not saying you have to, you know, we always hear stories of Jason Day spending four hours on his wedge game. You know, he, he does that because that, that could mean the difference between, you know, finishing in fifth place or 20th place. It's There's much bigger stake for guys like him. It's his job. I, I don't think you need to spend hours. I just want you to spend some time I think I'm alluding to variability practice with wedges. So what are your kind of some of your greatest hits with wedge practice? Well, I would say I'd, I'd look at what's the biggest issue with that player. If it's a strike issue with that player, then you're going to be spending more time probably block practice, working on the technique, working on you know contacting that ball correctly. But once it's kind of our level, you know, our strike is pretty solid. It's more of a speed or a selecting the right shot error then you're going to be spending more time in random or serial practice so that's where you're changing the shot more often and i know you like to still do a lot of block practice with wedges and that's fine i would probably challenge that and say i might switch you to three shots of the same and then move to a different one kind of like the trackman combine so you do three shots at 60, then you move to 40. Or you might do a more serial practice. So do a 50, then a 60, then a 70, then an 80. So it's it's random, but there's a specific order to it. Or my favorite is random practice. So do a 73-yard shot, then a 62-yard shot, then an 84-yard shot. So you're really mixing it up because you're forcing your brain to become engaged and you're forcing your brain with that type of practice to, to draw out 
the right speed and it, it requires everything right your full routine your full prep you're trying to yeah draw out that feel that you know is in there somewhere i i do i guess um two different ways of practice i guess there's multiple levels i'm going to approach this i'll try and keep this simple so everyone can understand for those 40 to 80 yard intermediate wedge shots, I definitely do a lot of block where I'm like solidifying those feels like that's my 40 yard shot. That's my 50. That's my 60. I'm always establishing those feels because they change for me. If anything, I've noticed my tendency is to hit it a little bit farther on the course. So if I have a 60 yard shot, my clock feel, my hands tend to go past that clock and I hit it a bit further. So I'm always having to recalibrate that. And a lot of that's done through block practice. But at the same time, I also do a ton of like what you said, especially with my SkyTrack at home. I hit the randomizer button and then I'm like, okay, 63, 72, 45. So I go back and forth between the two. I establish my feels and then I test myself. So I certainly do way more random practice with those shots than I do, let's say, on stock seven irons or eight irons, those shots. So because those are those are shots on the course where, again, you're having to change your swing speed. You're having to recall different things, distances a lot more often. So that's how I do those. Now, that's one segment. That's my 40 to 80 yard shots. So I do, I don't know what the percentages are, but I do a decent amount of block and a decent amount of random. In my yard or at a short game facility, it's almost all random for me. I'm changing the lie. I'm changing the target. Like I'll be in my yard. And yeah, my my dad used to yell at me for tearing up his yard, but now it's my yard so I can tear it up. I'll try and hit it to that tree over there. I'll stand underneath the branch and try and hit a low one underneath the branch or hit it above the tree. So I'm varying my target. I'm changing my lies in the rough. And I'm changing the trajectory that I want to hit the ball, you know, and then I'll figure out ways to kind of manipulate the golf club a little bit. Maybe I feel a little bit more forward shaft lean if I want to hit it lower. If I want to hit it higher, I'm opening up the face. Maybe I'm moving up in my stance a little bit. I'm trying all these different things and I'm reacting to the lie. If it's buried, do I have to see how much harder I have to swing to get it out of there versus if it's fluffy that I'm going to need to adjust there. So I would say on those shots, those, those pitch chip shots around the green, probably 80% random. Depends on what skill you're trying to challenge. Are you trying to challenge a technical skill? In other words, if you can't do a shot, you're going to require more blocked practice until you can do that shot. But when you get to your stage or inside the 40 to 60, uh, 40 yard shots, it's more decision-making that that skill becomes more important, right? It's like, what is this lie? How much force do I need to hit this shot? What trajectory is the best to get this close? So it's all a decision-making skill. And once that's the case, it's pretty much a random practice thing that's going to help you. And for people who don't know what random practice is, it's just hitting different shots each time. So you could still stick with your stock pattern, but you're hitting a 60-yard shot, then a 30-yard shot, then a 10-yard shot, or you're changing lies. You're changing targets, lies, distance. That's what random practice is. So that forces you to think about the force that you're using. So yeah, it forces you to think about the force, forces you to make certain decisions, think about how the ball's going to react, and then assess after that. At the very most, I would like someone to do that 
And then after they're shot, they can maybe hit one more where they can try and recreate that shot where they adjust for it. So say their first shot was horrendous. Drop another one down and hit. Just adjusting from the last one. Or maybe even until you hit the shot that you want and then move on. But if you hit too many shots in a row that are the same, you're not using that decision-making process anymore. You're not using those parts of the brains. That, that's turned off. It becomes more of a technical, just repetition endeavor. So, yeah, if, you're, if you know you can hit the shot, but you can't bring it out on the course, do more random practice and vice versa. It's a more random part of the game. I think it would demand more random practice. <laughs> that's too straightforward and obvious, but that's how I always thought of it. And that's probably why I was a better wedge player as a kid. I probably talked about this in another episode where I'd just be outside in the yard playing and trying all these different shots. And it really was mostly random practice. I was saying like, what could I do with my technique? How could I change it to make the ball do that? And, and figuring that out. And you could do this anywhere, like if there's an open field or somewhere like it's, it's I know not everyone has access to their own backyard or a field or even a short game facility. But if you have a small area where you can do stuff like that, I think it could pay big dividends for you on the course, because I think your main goal is, is like giving yourself these opportunities and practice and seeing how the club reacts to all these different situations so that when you see it on the golf course, you feel more confident with, as Adam said, making the right choice because you have to match the technique with the lie where the pin is and hopefully trying to get the ball somewhere on the green. You know, maybe not next to the pin, but somewhere around it. Yeah, that to me is is how you become a more functional wedge player is kind of like testing yourself more, I guess. In terms of decision making as well, there is a specific order. The first thing I look at is the lie of the ball because that's going to determine what shot you can hit as well if you walk up to it and it's sitting down in deep grass and there's no cushion beneath it then you're not going to be able to use the shallow angle of attack high lofted shot you're, you're probably going to have to use a steeper angle of attack for that so the lie is one of the first things i look at and then from there leading into that decision making stuff if you need a steeper angle of attack, that's going to affect how much force you need to use. And so there's so much to look at with this, but I just wanted to add that little point there that the lie is one of the first things that almost every good player, every good wedge player I know looks at first. I think wedge play is instinctual. So you don't have to think about these things from like the physics point of it. You have to like all these things we're talking about. You don't think about that when you're, on the course, there's a certain artistry to it, I guess, where like, yeah, you're looking at that lie and then your body's just like reacting to it, looking at the green, measuring the distance in your head a little bit. And then you're doing a few practice swings to create that feel that you think is appropriate with the technique and you try and execute. But it, it's a more, it's definitely a more instinctual part of the game if, if, if that's the word you want to use. Because I, I mean, I think there's a lot of instinctual parts of golf, but certainly in the short game, it, it comes out even more. If you have good instincts, yeah. Yeah. So why don't we stop it there? We'll do this as a two-parter. Just hang tight and we'll we'll do another episode where I think we can address a few more things. So Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com. May the 9th, 2021. I'm starting an eight-week course with people. So if you want to join that, go to AdamYoungGolf.com. Go to the improvement product section and you can see that there. If you're listening after that point... Tough luck. You've missed out on it.
If you're listening in like 2025, like email me and tell me what it's like. Will, will we even be here? <laughs> in the space-time continuum. And John, where can people find you? Practical-golf.com. Thanks for everyone's continued feedback. And we appreciate everyone listening. And we will see you next week with part two of Wedge Play.